graduate because of library fines? Oh, not just library fines. I um, I left with nine incompletes. Oh, okay. Slightly, not, maybe not not as good of a story that that it was right, just yeah. you're you're underwater with the library fines. Um, you got cl- you got close though, right? I mean, you, you sort of saw I the went finish line. Four years. Well, you know, really, what should have happened was that I should have. Um, I should have taken a, a year or two, you know, a few years off in the middle mm-hmm. uh, between um, sophomore and junior years. But I had immigrant parents who both left school around age four, 14, 15. Yeah. And I'm the first person in my family ever to go, ever to graduate from high school, let alone go to college. And they were freaked out that if I took a leave like this I would lose my scholarship Mm -hmm. so I kept going and in the meantime I was like feckless and hanging out and taking drugs and all this stuff you know it was just um, I was not very smart Um, New York in the 70s New York in the 70s yeah yeah. but you know I've got to say that um, many moons have gone past and I've been lucky enough that nobody has ever asked me to prove that I graduate from college. I mean, or, I mean, I've never had, never posed as if I did. Yeah. But, you know, it's never come up. So it's it's one of those 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 ironies of life, you know, that um, that they felt it would have been a mistake to have taken that leave, but because you didn't take the leave, you. I mean, I, I assume yeah. that that's got to be the greatest disappointment. It's just not seeing college, just getting that that close and not not finishing up. Well, you know, I got. I got a pretty good education in yeah. there anyway, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I did um, not fulfill my science requirement, that's for sure. So what, what, what's the next step? What, what, what happens after you leave school? Oh, after I left school, um, I spent a summer being confused because, again, I had no guide. Yeah. I had no role model to, you know. I, my father worked in a factory. Uh, so I didn't really know what to do until I got the idea of... Um, working at the Strand Bookstore, mm-hmm. and uh, I was accepted, and I worked there for three years. Um, then I briefly worked as assistant to a photographer who took book jacket portraits. I, not not that I had anything to do with photography, but I did, like, billing and stuff like that and, and was messenger. And then I got a job in the mailroom at the New York Review of Books, and that pretty much determined my the whole future course yeah. of my life. I, I, I like this notion of... Um I know I kind of want to be around books, you know, right. and, and there are all these different ways to do that. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you're sure that you necessarily wanted to be a full-time writer at that point. But I was- did. I wanted to be a writer. Um, what kind of writing? I mean, I really thought at the time that I was going to be um, an experimental writer appreciated by the few. Yeah. Would never make any money at it. Um, and really, I kind of thought that, you know... Okay, so I, I tried to, you know, I uh, when I left the New York Review, I left on my thirtieth birthday, and I thought, okay, it's the last full time job I'll ever have, and it, so far it's been successful. Um, I think you're probably in the clear at this point. Yeah, and um, I thought I was going to be able to support myself through my writing for magazines, because at that point I was no longer an experimental writer, but writing stuff for magazines. Um, until I realized I couldn't, and then I became a proofreader for Sports Illustrated, which I did until they got rid of all their proofreaders. Sure. Yeah. Were any of these, you know, this, this this almost this idea of kind of like like learning through osmosis in a sense of just again kind of being in the proximity of these things? Were these actually helpful toward that end goal of becoming a writer? Well, 
Um, you know, I mean, working at the Strand was great because um, I met a lot of great people. It was like uh, it was a whole no wave period in music, yeah. and my friends were all in all these bands. Early eighties, um, and I also I was um, the late seventies, actually seventy six, seventy nine were my dates there. Um, also, um, I was the entire paperback department. Mm. So whenever they opened up a library, anything that wasn't a hardbound book, they would toss me. So it really enlarged my knowledge of books. Yeah. Um, the New York Review, though, um, that was a different story. Because first of all, I got started writing because I realized that I was learning how New York Review pieces were being written. Mm. And I could do one myself. You had the and formula so down. I had the formula down. I snuck a book home over the weekend, reviewed it, and handed in my review on spec but also my boss Barbara Epstein um, was the greatest teacher I ever had I mean she um, she really made me as a writer more than any other person in my life what what is in a nutshell what is the what's the secret sauce what is the formula that you figured out so quickly well it's you know it's it's a bunch of different things but it's really about how to uh, be aware of the reader um, and tell them about stuff, instruct them, if you will, but not insult their intelligence. Assume that they know things, but not assume too much and not assume too little, and um, address them as an equal while you know you alone possess this knowledge which you're imparting. Yeah. Um, and you know many, many things about the use of language. And um, and keeping a tone, and not, you know, not not being stupidly formal, but not being, not tumbling into slang completely either. Just maintaining a balance. That, that's always, and, and that's the thing that I've um, kind of grappled with a little bit when it comes to. I mean, I've done plenty of reviews in my days, is you know, and and it seems like it's this kind of you know idea of like those who can't teach and almost like those who can't maybe write books. Re- review books but you know at what point um how i guess i guess how much creativity is required on the part of the reviewer you know and 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 at what point do you actually end up kind of alienating the reader by taking them on your own little separate journey well i mean you try not to alienate the reader but you try to make i mean at least for this was true for the review wasn't necessarily true if you're writing reviewing books for as i did you know for new daily newspapers Mm -hmm. sometimes um, there you're giving an account of the book and you're saying this is what it says sets out to do and whether it succeeds yeah. or not. But for the New York Review you had a lot more latitude. So these were always essays. You know, they were always more than a review. And um, you know, and really I mean I, I think of um, writing as all ri- you know, all writing that a writer does is writing. Yeah. And um, sometimes things work out better than others there are reviews I wrote for the review that there are pieces I wrote for the review that I never want to see again as long as I live but there are others that you know I reprinted because they were um, you know there something some spark went off there something more than just a book review occurred on you know as it was being written uh, one of your panel mates said and I, I think it it fits here is this you know idea of kind of the, the importance of um, of deadlines and I, I I'm wondering if that really kind of helped you get I don't want to say get your shit together but you know no, no, helped you true. become a more formal writer and and helped you um, 
you know, as you said, you were purposefully experimental at first, but really, uh, I guess, give people what they wanted to read and, and present something clearly. Yeah, definitely. Um, I learned to um, write for readers and um, always bear in mind what their questions will be and all that. Um, deadlines, you know, also just help me, yeah. force me to finish things because I have a project, a side project I've been carrying on for 15 years <laughs> and I don't, you know, I've never shown it to anybody. Um, it, uh, there's no publisher involved at this point, but it might take me another, you know, I mean, I hope I get it done before I die. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, whereas a deadline fills me with fear. And yeah. fear is the greatest engine to getting work sure. done. Yeah. What makes a side project a side project? Well, it's, it's because it's, it's... I still don't know what I'm doing. Does this harken back a little bit to the more kind of experimental time? Well, it's not... I mean, it might be... Well, I mean, you know, look, everything is an experiment. Sure. Um, but you have to bear in mind that in the 70s... Um, the 70s were a weird time. Um, I only had one friend who was a writer. Um, most people were in rock bands mm-hmm. or they were making movies. Um, writing, I mean, this this kind of thing could yeah. not have happened then. Writing was kind of viewed as something that was not over exactly. Everybody read. Everybody read tons. But, um, but writing was an antiquated musty profession mm. and it, and unfortunately I have to say that um, writing as well as like figurative painting are things that came back with um, the retro mood of the Reagan years mm. those things writing, figurative painting mashed potatoes, wearing suits all those things came back you know <laughs> What's the common thread between those? Well, they're all things that the revolution was supposed to have overturned. Sure. You know, uh, it, you know, it's funny because it does it does feel like, and, and you know, maybe it's because we're here, but but certainly in New York, I mean, it, it feels like we've pulled a complete one eighty because now and the internet certainly plays a large role in this, but everybody's kind of a writer now, right? Everybody right. everybody considers themselves a writer at this point. Um, you seem to have. You mixed feelings about that. Well, I mean, I let a, let a hundred flowers bloom, let a ten thousand flowers yeah. bloom. I'm all for that, but at the same time, um, you know, there is a difference between writing down a bunch of notes to yourself, or writing an email, writing a yeah. you know, writing a tweet, whatever, and writing something that's deliberately composed to make an effect, something that's worked over, something that, um, you know, I, I mean, this is something that comes up in my classes. I teach writing every spring, and um, it's the, the hardest thing to get across to students is uh, the importance of um, rereading mm. yourself. Not just rewriting. Everybody talks about revision, but rereading yourself. And rereading, you know, I mean... Every day, as you're working on a chapter, reading from the beginning hmm. again and again and again and again, reading it out loud to yourself if need be. You know, you're making something out of words. You're not just simply communicating a thought. You're also building something, and it's got to be durable. Yeah, it's it's always. I know not everybody's like this, but it's always sort of felt. I mean, the, the, the most exciting things that I, I, I ever write are the things that feel like 
you're kind of piecing a puzzle together mm-hmm. you know that that I mean to me the most energy and, and and you know just speaking as somebody who writes for his job but mostly you know news thing I news things and I slog through a lot of stuff but there is a certain energy in in connecting two thoughts I mean that's to me that's kind of the ultimate yeah the ultimate prize of writing yeah yeah it's um were you have you always been a rereader? I mean, that's that. It's it's hard, right? I mean, it's it's hard listening to your voice on tape. It's hard seeing yourself on, you know, on on video, and, sure. and it, you know, it's it's often hard to go back and reread things. It is, yeah. I mean, I've always been hyper self conscious, which is both, you know, um, something that makes it hard for me to go back and reread my yeah. own stuff, but also it's it's necessary. You know, it's um, it's um. I guess it's constantly looking at yourself in the mirror to make sure you shaved under your nose. Um, I, um, and for me, um, also, I, you know, English is my second language. So mm. it was also a matter of being afraid of not getting it right. Yeah. You know, always, you know, always feeling like a bit of an imposter. And so... Perfecting the disguise is part of the process. It's 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 funny that you say that because I, I've I've noticed and uh, yeah I was I was in uh, Ber- Berlin last week and this is something that I've noticed particularly with Europeans who didn't grow up with English that they they'll randomly toss in a word that no native English speaker would in casual conversation. And it's the it's the one hundred percent, especially especially German people. There's something about the preciseness of that of right. that language and having a word for everything. But you know, I, I remember a, a while ago uh, having a, a casual conversation with with um, I believe she was French, and she tossed in the word uh, contiguous, which is a great word and the perfect word. But there's there's almost in a sense. I mean, once you've mastered that second language, I mean, maybe, maybe there's actually a benefit from not having been a native speaker. Mm-hmm. I think so, because, um, you know, it's remarkable how many English words I can remember more or less when and under what circumstances mm. I first encountered mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. The whole genealog- genealogy there. Yeah. Um, whereas French, um, I mean, my French is not even very good, because I, I haven't taken French in school since third grade, um, but it's instinctive. And it's, um, and yeah, I th- you know, I, I go to French when I'm in pain, hmm. you know, for example, it's a, the moments of extremity. It's like going back to the mother's womb. Yeah. It, uh, it's almost unconscious. Yeah. Speaking. Um, it, 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 it's interesting that you say, uh, this sort of this, this connection between place and, and words or, you know, um, time and setting and words. Cause you know, I was, uh, I was reading an, uh, an interview that, again, in my <laughs> very <laughs> elementary research on the way here, uh, an interview, and, and you were, um, I think it was, I think you were speaking about about low life, um, and the question was something along the lines of, of and, and again, this completely pertains to this conversation, this uh, this panel, there was so much conversation about, about walking and the mm-hmm. role that walking has played in all these different texts, and um, part of New York being such a, I mean, uh, you know, there's all these boroughs, but a, a lot of history happened in a really short, mm-hmm. really small area. And 
the question was something along the lines of, you know, um, how having spent so much time in the world of low life has informed your you know, your perception of New York, you know, you're walking around and you walk past McSorley's or you walk past all these places where all these uh, crazy stories happen. And, and, you know, and I think your answer was something along the lines of, you know, now that that book has kind of been expunged from your, your consciousness, that it's really these moments in your life, you know, that you're thinking about. And, and I think that really, that kind of relates to this idea of learning a word Mm -hmm. and it, and, this kind of personal connection that you make to it. Sure. Um, and I was going to ask you, you know, it, you, you consider yourself a very self-conscious person, and I'm wondering how that plays as somebody who writes about these other others and and you know big broad topics like cities, how that personal connection plays a role in that writing. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, in in many many ways. I mean, for one thing. Um, low life, for example, came out of um, came very much out of my trying. It, it you know, I, I started writing this book. Um, well, I got the first idea to write this book in '86, mm. um, and at that point, it'd been four years since the building I lived in at the time was first bought by a speculator. Um, this was a fairly large double tenement with. 35 or so apartments in it and give you an idea first guy bought it for $90,000 within a couple of years it was in the millions mm-hmm. already um, and God knows how much it would be yeah. now but um, so I was already banged in 1982 when that happened I thought oh shit what I thought was going to happen to the city is not going to happen and instead we're going toward the opposite and this is going to be lost what, what was the neighborhood the background you know because every day I would like you know my building but also the the the, the hulks the burned out hulks of buildings nearby because there were a lot of burned out yeah. buildings and the ones that were still standing and you'd see the cornices and the entablatures and stuff and I'd look at that and think oh, that's the 19th century I'm living among the ruins of the 19th century and I have a strong connection with time, you know, historical time. It's very important for me to be in a place where thing, not everything was built yesterday, yeah. you know. And I thought it's going to be lost. And also the connection, because I felt this connection, even though, you know, we were young layabouts living in this. Actually, I lived in this weird building with a lot of poets. Allen Ginsberg lived in this building huh. and uh, <laughs> many people like that. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I s- still felt that we had this primal connection to the people who had originally... The building was built in around 1905. Mm. Uh, one of the tenants died in the Triangle Shirtwaist wow. Fire. Um, you know, then there was some kind of direct line between them and us. And I feared the steamroller of so-called progress coming along and just, like, not leaving a trace. And so... It wasn't so much, uh, you know, um, populating my neighborhood with these historical facts. It was that the historical facts, even the ones I didn't immediately know, in a sense I felt like I already knew them, you know, that, um, like, I already knew that along 2nd Avenue and along 5th Street, there were all these remains of 
uh, German societies, which mm. you could see with their names on the second or third floor. Um, painted on the bricks on the side? Well, no, not painted, carved, okay. you know, um, because it had been a German neighborhood. And it's when it stopped being a German neighborhood, when the steamship, the General Slocum, sank in the Hudson, in the East River, rather, um, and the whole neighborhood moved up to Yorkville. Um, but you had this remaining trace of German civilization there, etc. There were many, many such things there. And so they were, those facts were already a part of me before I decided to write a book and figure out how they all connected, etc. You know, it was like... Um, they were a part of my history in a certain mm. kind of way. It, it sounds like part of your job is, um, I don't know if historian's the right word. What, I'm just a writer. What, but what you do as a, uh, as a historical writer is to um, take away the abstraction and kind of pinpoint those moments. I mean, you, you, know, you mentioned the, the sinking of the ship as, as this turning point, or, you know, and, and Triangle Waste Fire is also a very good example of something where every kind of everything changed out of that. You know, mm-hmm. union rules, all these other things. Is that is is that what you see your role being is sort of connecting those dots, or at least kind of de-abstractifying the nature yeah, of I history? Mean, um, trying to prevent historical amnesia yeah. is, I figure, at least one of my jobs. Yeah, definitely. Low life. I mean, it's it's in it's in it's in the title. You know, it's. Um, it, it, it's it's trying it's trying to preserve history, but it's not necessarily trying to preserve the best you know the objectively like best parts of history or the you know the the I kind of the, the nicest the the cheerier things that we tend to remember in history books. Well, you know the fact is that um, the um, low life and the other Paris both come from the same place, mm. which is my wish to present a complete view of what working-class life yeah. was historically in both those cities. There's a big difference between those books because in Paris, you had people chronicling this stuff mm. as far as back as the 18th century uh, in great detail, numerous volumes, uh, many newspaper articles, many, many famous writers going into the poor parts of town, many famous writers emerging themselves from the poor parts of town. Whereas in New York, really, there's not a whole lot of that until you get to well into the 20th century. In the 19th century, what you mostly have is sensational journalism. Yeah. And you don't even know, and it's impossible to know at this remove, how much of this stuff was made up. Why was why wasn't that present in, in New York in that time period? Why was why, why wasn't that why wasn't that sort of native writing present in New York? Well, because um, for one thing, New York at the, the American culture in the nineteenth century talk about being self conscious was ultra self conscious. It was um, in the shadow of British culture, and so there was this constant pressure mm. to make this you know establish the fact that we were just as civilized as the Brits. So, you know, the lower classes, nobody talked about them much, you know, except in specific. I mean, it started to change around the, you know, time of the Civil War, you know, Whitman, Melville, really, in a way, but um, really only gathered steam in the 1890s and thereafter. Um, And um, before that, you know, the... um, the civilized press 
wanted to pretend that um, New York was a place that deserved to be ranked alongside Paris and London, yeah. which were, of course, bastions of pure civilization sure. inhabited only by the gentry. Um, they had a few hundred years head start. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's complete nonsense. And the only place where we find news of the lower classes was sensationalism pervade by these sheets where, you know, people were, you know, writing as they composed the hot type, essentially, and um, were embellishing wildly, um, turning minor skirmishes into major riots and um, making up. And, you know, there I, I know of a couple of cases of... Um, Legendary criminals who are referred to in, in low life who probably actually didn't exist. Historians have hmm. suggested since. It's interesting. That, that, that actually that bring, brings up something that I, I want to talk about because I tend to um, lump low life together with, uh, with gangs of New York in, in a lot of ways. And, um, and, I, and I, think, I think it's because when uh, the book was uh, initially recommended to me it was because I I was talking to somebody about Gangs in New York. You're talking about Gangs in New York, the book of the movie? The, the book. The oh, book. The book. Well, of course, it was one of my major sources. And one of the things I, I set out to do, I wanted to trace back all of Herbert Asbury's stories to their sources. And I traced them most, most of them back to the Police Gazette. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Unverifiable. What, what, was, what was, was part of the idea to... Because, you know, I, I think there's a lot... There's a lot of apocryphal stories in, yeah. in, in all of in all of his, his books. It's it's pretty yeah. clear, and and I, I don't really know much about his motives at the time. But having read like three or four of his books, after a while, it's it's clear that he seems to be more, more interested in the stories right. than necessarily in, in reporting. Them. And don't forget that that was it wasn't just him. It was, there was a lot of that sure. at the time. Yeah. Sure, um, but was, uh, was that part of the objective? Was just was finding the, the truth. Yeah, I wanted to find the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we mean his objective. Uh, of your objective to find yeah, the truth no, in these stories. Yeah, no, I wanted to find that, the truth, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I really, you know, I'm very, I'm a very material person, and I want to find out, like, what everything looked like, what they smelled like, what it sounded like, etc. And so I want, you know, I was trying to, like, put myself on the street in 1850. And so when something particularly outrageous came up in the pages of Gangs New York, I wanted to find out, I mean, is this conceivable? Yeah. Um, did Hellcat Maggie really file her teeth to points and, you know, uh, and, and uh, wear brass fingernails to claw people's eyes out? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know, and neither does anybody else, really. Do, do, how important is it that you, you know, uh, how important is it to you that you are close to the source geographically? How important is it to be in New York to write a book about New York? I don't think you have to be in New York to write a book about it. I think it might actually work better if you're not in New York to write about it. But you definitely have to have a lot of experience of a place in order to write about it. You know, um, I mean, I New York, I, you know, I lived here for 28 years. Um, Paris, I never lived for any long extended period of time, a um, few months at a stretch. But, you know, I have the experience of many decades going back to 1963, the first time I ever went there. So, you know, I have, like, I have a pretty deep-rooted sense of Paris. I, I, a lot of key things happen to me in Paris. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know that there's another city besides those two that I could do that with. Mm. Um, 
you know, I also wrote about my native town, but that's a book nobody ever read. Um, but, um, you know, as much as I might be curious about Berlin, I couldn't sit down tomorrow yeah. and write a book about Berlin, you know. It's, it's, it, 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 it plays, again, to this idea of the, the kind of how, how the personal plays a role, you know. Right. You said the fact that key things happened to you, that you had these, I guess, formative experiences in these cities makes you somehow more qualified to, to write about a city, um, you know, maybe not more qualified, but at least gives you more confidence to write about it. Uh, it's, and, and I understand that from, from, from one point of view, but at the same time, you know, can you say that New York City, maybe not now, but maybe New York City in the 70s has at least some semblance of similar character to the New York City you're writing, writing about or, you know, or Paris? Yeah, well, in both cases, that's what I was looking for. Mm. You know, I was looking for a link to my own history in yeah. a way. Even though there's not much about me in low life and there's nothing about me in the Paris book, they're both very personal books. Mm. You know, were were there clear parallels between you know uh, the, the New York of low life and what you were experiencing experiencing in the late seventies, early eighties? Well, definitely. I mean, um, you know, I, I, when I would come upon some recurrence in my research I'd be absolutely thrilled you know I remember because um, I had friends who lived on the Bowery just north of um, um, Delancey Street mm. and um, I look out the window of their you know their apartment and there'd be prostitutes lined up yeah. and and then I ran across the fact that this was a popular site of street prostitution going back to the 1880s yeah you know bang um, also you know there were all these like anarchists hanging around Tompkins Square Park mm-hmm. in in the 80s not so much the 70s but the 80s and lo and behold it was a hotbed of anarchism beginning with um, Johann Most and uh, and and you know ex communards who settled there in the 1870s 1880s you know there's all these recurrences and Paris you know again same thing I mean you do like um, there are you know so many sites that you can find that you can trace back the fact that this block is different from that block yeah. over here and that block over there you trace it back to something that was in place in the middle ages and you know d- I mean stopped existing in living memory a long, long time ago. But nevertheless, it was like a contagion, you know? It's like um, invisibly transmitted from generation yeah. to generation. It's interesting you said uh, recurrences. You know, is it, are they recurrences, or is it a direct, a direct line? Well, it is a kind of direct line, but it's submerged mm. so that the uh, observance has been kept up by people who have no idea that they're participating in this tradition yeah it's interesting um i hate to sort sort of you know make the easy comparison but uh the minute you started talking about the forthcoming book um and you were describing some of the kind of the character that's going out of Paris. I mean, easy comparison, but you know, it's you're probably drawing on New York a little bit for that, right? Of you know, it's it seems to, and for obvious reasons, I know a lot less about Paris than I, I, I do about New York. But it sounds like it's 
undergone something very similar and maybe uh, you know a bit ahead of us. Yeah, no, that's true. I, yeah, I started noticing this in the early '80s. Well, you know, really around the same time, but it was it was further along. It's yeah. true because um, I mean the way I I end my book at some indefinite point in the '70s, but it's really the first thing that happened is when they got rid of Leal, which was the huge marketplace in the middle of Paris. These vast cast iron pavilions. I went, you know, I visited there with my mother in 1963. By the time I was went there as a student 10 years later, they were gone. There was this pit there instead. Um, and, um, and then they started building all this other stuff. And they built Beaubourg on the site of what was really like one of the war slums in Paris that, until the 60s. Um, so, yeah, it was, the machine was definitely chugging when New York was only beginning to think about these things. Yeah, I mean, that, that was really, uh, that, I think that's what struck me above all about Berlin is how much people are kind of living within the confines of history there. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's unavoidable. Um, is, it, is it important that the city, that these cities make a concerted effort to preserve these sites? See, then you get into um, a kind of museumification. Yeah. I mean, which is better than nothing. I'd rather them keep the buildings rather than um, get rid of them altogether. Of course, what happens, I mean, not so much in New York. There's a very European phenomenon. It's, um, it's sometimes called façadisme and sometimes called, uh, in French, it's curatage urbain. You know you know what a curette is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, that's where they preserve the facade and get rid of the rest of the building and they build a new structure that superficially from the outside looks like an old building so a lot of that is there i don't want you to solve the crisis but is there is there an answer beyond um uh yeah i guess throwing up museums or just telling people they can't build new buildings um you know, I mean, there's the, I think preservation is generally a good thing. Um, you know, you have to keep a link to the past. Um, you know, I mean, I would prefer that capitalism be overthrown and that the, all the buildings that go up be, you know, small and um, and housing small businesses. It would be this would be, you know, carrying the this tradition of the city into the future as far as I'm concerned as opposed to vast anonymous jerry built you know I mean skyscrapers were interesting until about 1960 and after that it becomes you know just serial production of um, containers Um, so I wish you know architecture weren't about containers and I wish commerce weren't strictly about multinational corporations but what are you going to do yeah so all solutions can at best be partial you know it's 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 interesting to that you brought the bowery because it does feel like that's sort of um at least as far as manhattan is concerned once that that's gone i mean that that is that that that's a direct line right i mean there's something sure. I, I i don't know geographically or historically what it is exactly about that area that's made it relatively in some sense kind of unchanged from the rest of the city i mean it's going away now obviously but yeah no i mean see the bowery hit its peak 
as an entertainment district um, around 1910 or so. Mm. And, uh, you know, the war and then Prohibition really killed it. Um, And then it was the domain of the stumble bomb. And it entered the language. And older people... well, they're mostly all dead now, but the idea of, you know, you look like a Bowery bum. Yeah. Um, it's part of the language. Um, Bowery boys. and Bowery boys. I remember a, a chain of restaurants in Florida, of all places, called the Bowery or Bowery's or something like that. <laughs> the idea being that it was dirt cheap. You, yeah. you know, you got the cheapest hot dog you could find, you know. Um so there was that for a long time. It was a kind of social stigma. But I remember, like, I mean, because I had you know, quite a few friends who lived along the Bowery or on, on the side streets, and here was this boulevard. It was a goddamn boulevard. Yeah. I mean, it, this was not going to last. You know, somebody eventually was going to find this. And sure enough, most of the real estate was owned by very few landlords. You know, um, it was the Barry Pizza Oven Company that owned, like... A, some incredible percentage of they're the still buildings. right there actually they're still there yeah Houston, i know yeah. but they own tons of buildings and you had loft buildings that dated back 100 years or so and then you had like these georgian row houses that dated back to the 1830s and they were just just being used for storage they were gutted um and now there's not one of them sta- left standing you know they're just eliminated but um and it was clear that they were just Holding on to the Bowery until they could get a price. It's like, are you familiar with this? With the um, in New York, um, a one or two story commercial building is called a taxpayer. No, um, there, you still see these here and there, mostly in the boroughs. Not so much in Manhattan yeah. anymore. Um, they they mostly were built in the twenties, um, and the idea was that they put up this building and they rented out to businesses any kind of businesses, just to pay the land tax. Um, but eventually, there was going to be a skyscraper there. Well, the time is coming now. Yeah. So these people in the 20s, before, before the Depression chilled us for decades, they were visionaries in a sense. They could see that it was going to be like what's going on now. You know. So the Bowery was the Barry Pizza Oven people you know, were keeping most of the Bowery as an extended series of taxpayers, essentially. Do, do, you, do you have any faith that we're, we're moving towards something that, that's interesting or, or fascinating or, or vibrant in its own way? Or is, does it just oh, feel like everything's kind of dissipating? No, it's got to be. I mean, the thing is, you can never predict. I mean, yeah. there's horrible stuff up ahead. There's no question about it. Um, look at the state of the presidential campaign sure. right now. Um, but the th- but, but you know, there the, can the, be surprises. And yeah. there's also, like, I also know, look, I'm... I'm an old, right? I'm 61 years old. So I don't know what's going on among the youngs. They're doing something (laughs) that I do not have access to and will never have access to until it's commercialized five or ten years after the fact. But 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 there's there's this idea too as somebody again not to use the word historian but it's just the most accessible one right now but uh, you know of pointing to this presidential election and you know pointing out the similarities between this and the, the election between like Roosevelt and Taft and the and the the mudslinging that was going on back then I mean there's it, it, there's kind of a historical pres- precedent for everything right or are we so far gone at this point um, No there always is a historical precedent to everything um, but um, 
although there's really not much of a historical precedent for the kind of scale we're talking sure. about, the kind of numbers of people. Yeah. You know, I did talk about population density. That's true about Manhattan. The population density has actually lessened in Manhattan. But still, like, um, the you know, the fact that real real estate people are right now, are buy, as we speak, are buying up the Bronx. Mm. And, you know, that's... And where do you go from there? Where do poor people go, you know? Um, when um, there's enough people in the five boroughs making large amounts of money sufficient to buying these condos it's a terrifying thought because you know it um ultimately everybody has to work for corporations or else what you know it used to be that uh okay if you got priced out of your neighborhood you go to another cheaper neighborhood what if there are no more cheaper neighborhoods you know, that's so it's scale. The, you know, and and the limited, the geographical limitations of of a yeah. place. I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. I, I think the ray of hope, if if there is one, and and I'm actually very similar to you. I did the same exact thing. I, I always one of my favorite things of traveling. A, I, I really enjoy traveling alone and just you know the idea of walking. And and B, I I love supermarkets. I'm 100% with you. And and I think if there's a ray of hope in that, it's the fact that um, you're finding it in, in some ways in, in the most sort of mass market consumer place possible. I mean, that, it, you know, there, there, there's there, there's that kind of inherent irony there of you trying to find the unique localized culture of a place in this completely homogenized area. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I don't know what argument I'm making. I don't know if I'm saying, you know, m- maybe there's some hope for uh, localization and in, in globalization. But Well, you know, one thing, uh, here's an interesting model, uh, which I, I, I sometimes think of in very dark moments, and that is this weird linguistic phenomenon mm. that um, there was a time when um, everybody was afraid that with mass media... Um, local dialects would disappear. And this did start to happen. People started to speak more like the people on TV. Except that there was then this weird slapback Mm. from the other direction that there's really, really, really local speech in various cities in like Baltimore and Milwaukee you know, would develop like and this is within recent decades have developed hyper specific local slang out of nowhere nobody knows how this happened but you know it's a direct inverse movement of what seemed to be a larger pattern this is this is something i'm, I'm running into a lot as 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 i'm i'm you know i'm i'm working as an editor right now and i have a lot of uh writers working underneath me and um you know, some of the younger ones, we're, we're trying to teach them a little bit how to uh, become feature writers. Um, and, and what I didn't, it, it makes a lot of sense in, in hindsight, but the, the thing that I completely didn't anticipate was um, how hard it is to self edit. You know, that, that you, you know, I, I assign something to somebody, I give them a topic, and your immediate instinct is to just go out and sort of start grabbing everything, and then you see a thousand word story blowing up to a five thousand word story and you know as we're sitting here um you know getting excited about ideas of regional dialect i have to imagine that that far and away 
is the hardest part or one of the hardest parts of your job is sitting down and deciding, okay, well, this is what I'm spending the next three to five years working on, and it has to be this fascinating sliver of this, you know, this fascinating slice of this giant fascinating pie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the weird things is that doing research... um, you really have no idea what you'll end up using yeah. and how much space it'll take up. You know, I would think like this topic, I think doing my research, oh man, this is going to be like a big chapter, like 20 pages. No, it ends up being th- two and a half pages or and vice versa. And likewise, you know, for my Paris research, um, you know, I'm, I'm old fashioned. I still do things on paper. I have um, two and a half shoe boxes of index cards <laughs> I used maybe not quite two thirds of <laughs> them there's a lot that I did yeah. not use yeah. at all you know um, yeah and and somehow I only know this when I'm actually writing you know I because I don't I don't make up an outline or anything like that I just start writing and the outline starts to materialize gradually as I'm working and um, and it's like you know it's a bit like those novelists who tell you their characters start doing things they can't anticipate well it's not just fictional characters who do that it happens with non-fiction too the book start, starts dictating its own terms and you can only kind of sit back and say yeah. okay you know you're you're you know, one of your book collections of writings is called "Kill All Your Darlings." I mean, that's that's exactly what we're talking about, right? That's the idea of, um, oh, I've got this really amazing thing that I want to tell people that I really want to put in this book, and yeah. at some and point, there's no place to put it in. Yeah, yeah, it's, it happens. Maybe, yeah. maybe if you're lucky, it becomes another book at some point. Yeah. But more than likely, just it goes back in the closet. Um, as somebody who teaches writing, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think I, in some ways, write similarly to you do, that I, I'm terrible with outlines. I'm good at sort of, you know, maybe knowing where the end's going to be yeah. and the beginning is and maybe filling the right. space in from there. But um, it's just this problem with teaching anything creative is that you can't, you can kind of tell people what you do, but you can't necessarily, it's not necessarily the best way for them to write. I mean, some people are just more you know have to be a little more formulaic and have to write outlines when when you sit down and you're teaching a uh, a course i don't know if you're uh, how long of these projects they're working on but you know it's is is the best you can do to just kind of tell people how you do things well you know well for one thing um the course i've been teaching at bard for the last 15 years 16 years is um it's always the essay. I never do a, a book-length thing. Yeah. Um, it's not really possible for college undergraduates But, but even, anyway. even in essays, people love outlines. Right. Um, so it's, um, you know, I, I stress the fact that there are many ways of organizing your thoughts. Yeah. There are many ways of doing this. Um, and, you know, I, I do tend to focus on the, the small steps rather than the overarching yeah. ones, you know. It's it's the you know sort of carving a sculpture out of marble, right? That you you have to you have to Kinda. do it one one you know, or the you have, you have to take it one step at a time. I mean, you know, given that CSA, I mean, it's nonfiction. So, um, in what order do you tell your story? And um, well, you know, sometimes you know, sometimes there'll be a clear narrative, but generally, if you're presenting a mass of facts, I find I always tell my students this: the best way to proceed 
which may change in the course of the writing, but mm. at least the best way to start out is by replicating the order in which you learned about the subject. You know, so mm. you're, um, you're reenacting your education yeah. for the benefit of the reader. You're taking them on the same trip. That plays into the idea of um, talking about a city, even if you're not directly talking about it through the way that you experience, playing upon your own your own experiences to tell to tell that story. Right. Of really um, finding a way to make something broad, personal. Yes. Right. Yeah, and 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 I guess for you, for um, you know, cer- certainly low life, and and I think to some degree. Uh, the, the the Paris book it's um, was sort of filtering that through immigrant culture I mean that was what that was what jumped out at you that was the mm-hmm. story that you wanted to tell because in in a sense well not even in a sense it, it, it was it was a story that you were that you yeah. were living yeah it was um, and it was a story of your parents did, were they did at what point or, or did they ever figure out what it is you did you know trying to translate from from people who spent their lives working in, in a factory? Oh yeah, you know because my father, um, well, both my father and my grandfather were laborers yeah. who left school very early, but they were also autodidacts. Ah. And I know my father wanted to be a writer. I know my father wanted to be a writer so much that he published one piece in his life when he was a young man, late forties in Belgium, and he gave me the name of his pseudonym he named me after his pseudonym um, so that's how much he wanted to pass the torch on my mother never read a book in her life I just had this vision of uh, you know Superman's parents putting him in the <laughs> little thing and shooting him off in the in the rocket toward yeah, earth my mother by, my mother was very 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 pious and when, um, when it was clear that I was going to become a writer her advice to me was Remember that he who corrupteth the young, better it be that a millstone be hung around their neck and thrown into, you know. So that was her angle on things. But my, my dad, you know, I fulfilled his dreams, really. Yeah. Does, how, how literally personal, personal has your writing gone over the years? I mean, are you interested in, in memoir? Well, I wrote a book uh, called The Factory of Facts um, that didn't do very well because it's I, I, I made two rookie I made well I went, made a couple of big mistakes yeah. with that book it's overwritten and it also I tried to stuff all my research into it which is a real rookie mistake I was too old to make it nevertheless there you go yeah. but that book is about is the closest thing to a memoir I've written and it's really not much about me it's about my family it's about Belgium it's about immigration directly you know all that kind of stuff um, I've also written bits and pieces over the years about my youth, you yeah. know, I've, and um, that, you know, someday I will, you know, figure out a way of writing that as a single work. Um, it took me, partly my background, you know, this is also the old school European in me. For many, many, many years, I could not write the word I. It was just, you know, it was... It would be like, you know, walking down the street with 
you know, flashing lights on my shirt. <laughs> I mean, it's it was gaudy, self-serving. You know, it's not done. Um, you know, I I I got over that after a while. But it's um, but it's still something I do step by step. I mean, I you know, this Paris book, I initially wrote a chapter that was going to be the first chapter. And then I thought, no, maybe it's better as the last chapter. And I just ended up just junking the whole thing, which was me and Paris. It, it turned out not to have a place in the book at all. But you that, know, that's, I mean, that's, you know, I, I think if you set out to, to, to write about yourself, that, that, that's one thing and a perfectly commendable pursuit. But this is something that, that you know, I, I encounter. I, I've been noticing this a lot with, I think there's almost this unconscious movement in documentaries to do this. I've been seeing this so much that... Um, what ends up happening is people insert themselves because there is a question of authenticity and that in order to show somebody that you have the authority to talk I was writing I was watching of all things I was watching a um, a documentary on uh, Elvis impersonators <laughs> you know as you do you're yeah. watching Netflix you watch sort of a strange offbeat documentary and, and it was fine at first and then at one point it completely turns into a story about the filmmaker and the fact that his father had employed Elvis impersonators and it becomes his story, and that's that's you know that I think that's the main thing that, yeah. that you're up against. I, I don't think you know I think I think you've been uh, writing for long enough, and people are interested enough that, 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 that in the life that you've led that if you were to go and write a book about yourself, you know it, it could be well received. But if you ought, if you just sort of shove yourself in there at some point, that it's like kind of breaking down the fourth wall but in a very unpleasant kind of way yeah yeah that you know maybe maybe stay out of there have, have you but are you um i mean are you are, are you are you sort of at a point where you know you've kind of collected up enough personal stories that you're interested again in potentially exploring yourself as a subject yeah maybe yeah i i mean or at least you know, I mean, I'm still shy of writing about directly about myself. Yeah, I've I have pretty strong boundaries, but at least you know, like this, you know, the things I live through. Yeah. You know, um, I, I just jumped into my mind. Um, what James M. Cain, you know, the the author of uh, the Postman Always Rings Twice, yeah, etc., yeah. um, once said that nobody should write their autobiography unless it could be subtitled or Up from Slavery. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's a point to that. Yeah, the, the, you need you need to you need to have you need to have a compelling yeah a compelling yeah. story in, in yeah. order to to tell that. Um, what about what about fiction? Well, fiction, I you know I've been doing little bits of it here and there. Yeah. Um, I um, it's a lot harder to show to people. I find. Yeah, yeah. I you know if you look in the New York Review blog, New York Review of Books blog, they publish two pieces. Well, actually, they published three pieces of my, by, by me this in the past six months, say, and one of them's about photography. But the other two, um, one of them is a memoir that pretends to be a story, hmm. and the other is a story that pretends to be a memoir. So you can check for yourself. So, so you're you're interested in as long as you get to kind of fudge. Fudge the boundaries a little bit yeah. you know, as long as he gets it, yeah. kind of gets to play it, yeah. and, and, and you know, and may, maybe in a way that that's um, that gets back to where you started in terms of writing and in terms of you know playing with the boundaries a little bit more, being right. a, being a little bit more yeah. experimental. Yeah, you know, it's it's, kind of, it's interesting how we we always kind of 
sure. head back in that direction to what, yeah. what originally got us interested. In I know. I mean, I think if I write, if I do write like a memoir, yeah. uh, it's going to have a strong component of fiction in it. I don't think I could do it otherwise. No. Yeah. There you go. That was Luke Sant. Recorded that one a few months back at Brooklyn Book Expo. He was on a panel with uh, Vivian Gornick and David Yulin talking about writing about cities. And, and he's somebody that I've been wanting to have on the show for a while. Uh, Luke wrote one of my all-time favorite books, maybe my all-time favorite book about New York City, uh, Low Life. thought he'd be a really interesting person to, to talk to. So we met outside of the, the, the courtroom building where that... Uh, where that conversation was held in the courtyard outside and just just talked about New York. It's something that's been weighing on my mind a lot as of late. I've been in this city for about a dozen years and, you know, as, as I think every single New Yorker does after a little while, I've been thinking a lot about moving and where I would go and whether or not any other city could possibly, you know, fill in all of the um, different facets of, of culture and excitement and, and entertainment and food and everything else that you, you get here. But also on the flip side, uh, you know, and this is I'm probably sick and tired of hearing people talk about this from New York, but the big question of whether or not New York is, is still New York. I mean, you know, granted, um, I, I moved here after 9-11, so that wasn't all that long ago. But even in that short period of time, it feels like a lot of what made New York so interesting has kind of gone away as the rent prices have been skyrocketing as uh, you know a lot of the the cooler bars and and, and restaurants and stores have 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 gone other under and you know it just feels like some of the culture is moving away uh, a lot of a lot of people in my life uh, probably about a dozen or so people that I know have, have moved to Los Angeles um so, you know, I thought it'd be very interesting to get his perspective on that, on, you know, changing New York. And he's he's got, obviously, he's been here for a while, so he has that perspective. And just as somebody who's just been a journalist and some really fascinating things about the city, including a little life, uh, about the kind of the, the, the seedy underbelly, the, the crime, all of the interesting things that have, have made New York, New York over the years. Um, so really, really glad I got the opportunity to talk to him. Really enjoyed that conversation. Um, his his new book, The Other Paris, is, is out now, and I guess it's probably worth noting that um, you know we this this as I mentioned earlier, this conversation was recorded a few months back, so uh, prior to you know the the recent Paris attacks, but um, you know I guess all, all the more reason to, to pick up uh, that book, a uh, fascinating book from a fascinating writer, and get a get some insight into the city that you. Haven't necessarily seen. So, uh, thanks so much to Luke for taking the time to do that. Thanks to Brian, as always, for editing the show together. Thanks to everybody at the Boing Boing Podcast Network. If you uh, if you enjoyed the show, many other fine podcasts you can check out over at iTunes. And while you're over at iTunes, you should take the opportunity to rate the show. You could certainly use uh, some ratings over there. You can like us over on uh, Facebook, where I'm starting to ramp up the updates over there. So. It you know maybe maybe worth checking out uh, the first and the best place to get all of your RIYL related information. However, still uh, is still the Tumblr that's RIYLcast.tumblr.com. If you've got any feedback, it's RIYLcast at gmail.com. Uh, I think that's about all I got for plugs right now. So I will see you just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.